0: So, we're here with both Stefan and me for the first time in a while. Yeah. are conducting a joint interview today with Emily Darling and Georgina Gurney. So Emily Darling is a conservation scientist at the Wildlife Conservation Society since 2014 after getting a PhD from Simon Fraser University in Biological Sciences in 2013. Georgie is at the Arc Center for Excellence in Coral Reef Studies. I believe, which is housed at James Cook University. You can correct me if I'm wrong there, Georgie. And there Georgie is a a senior research fellow in environmental social science after getting a PhD also from James Cook University. So how did you all meet? Was it like during your PhD process? Was it at a particular meeting? What kind of got this relationship off the ground in the first place?
1: I think I remember calling you from the World Parks Congress in Sydney, Georgie. Um, And I was, it was just a a twist of fate that we were on the same time zone. (laughs) Um, We, I think we're able to talk in the middle of the day, which we very rarely do now since we're on opposite sides of the world. Um, But I was really uh, keen to engage with social science expertise. Um, And so to try to yeah to try to reach out and get some of this expertise, um, I'd been working with Josh Sinner, uh, Tim Daw, Christina Hicks, Beatrice Crona in Kenya, where I did a lot of my graduate work, okay. and I reached out to 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 all those folks uh, and Josh in particular, and he said I've got this brilliant grad student, you should talk to Georgie about it, and so I think I I called you. That was my first memory.
0: So it was but a cold call.
2: Cold call. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I think so. I've been working with WCS, but not with um, with the Wildlife Conservation Society, but not with Emily for a while in Indonesia and also a little bit in Fiji. So we had a few common folks.
0: Okay. And that was for your dissertation work, Georgie?
2: Uh, yeah. So the work in Fiji and Indonesia was. And then I think when we I spoke with Emily back when she was at the World Parks Conference in Sydney, that was okay. when we started talk. She was leading this project, um, the MacArthur Monitoring Global Monitoring Project, and was, as she said, interested in getting some more social science um, expertise to deal with the human dimensions element of the project.
0: Okay, so yeah, that's definitely one of the most common themes that we've explored on this podcast. Is it's almost like a kind of interview. I feel like we do. It's like here's a here's a biologist or an ecologist who decided they wanted to like learn more social science. Um, <laughs> So Emily, what was it? I mean, maybe to some people, the answer is like, oh, well, of course, you need to understand human behavior to blah, 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 blah. Do you have a particular version of that that you went through? You were working with social scientists, you said, but you got your PhD in biology. So you're doing ecology and biology like in Kenya, but then you were working in an interdisciplinary team already at that point?
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean... To go, to go a little bit further back, I was, I've been trained as a field biologist. So as an okay. undergrad, I spent Canadian winters with plants in a university greenhouse, which turned out to be the warmest place on campus. Um, yeah. And then during my graduate work, I lived in coastal Kenya, uh, helping to survey coral reefs and in these really vibrant fishing communities. So obviously people were all around me um, mm. selling fish, dealing with fish, thinking about fish, talking about fish. Um, so, as I learned a bit of Swahili and got to know the fishermen who were helping me with my ecology experiments, it turned out that they really wanted answers to questions that I wasn't asking. So, mm-hmm. they wanted to know are their reefs healthy? Is their management working? The women wanted to know why isn't management working for them? And so, there was this, like you say, this great interdisciplinary team engaged in and around Kenya. And so, throughout the six years that I was there, um, people like Christina Hicks, uh, Josh Sinner, Tim Da, Beatrice Crona, interdisciplinary ecologists like Nick Graham, um, Mm -hmm. and then the WCS Kenya social scientist, Carol Bungay. um, They were just this incredible sounding board as I started to try to to think about how how would they answer these questions? How do we think about this in an interdisciplinary lens? So I think that came very naturally because of the group that was there. Along the way, I uh, worked with Christina and Carol to do a small survey on food security in MPAs. Um, where we interviewed women and found that they didn't actually experience any benefit of the MPA, even though men were reporting benefits for, for some reason. Mm. Um, and so I was really hooked on this idea that you could try to take, you know, very similar research approaches and questions, but tailor the questions to what people wanted to know. Um, and I also realized very quickly that whoever calls social science a soft science has never done it. It is the hardest science I have ever done.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that distinction has always kind of irked me. You know, this, the whole idea of like hard versus soft sounds so like macho to me, right? I think it's just like, come on, people.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: it's also made me very grateful whenever I do get to go underwater and survey corals or fish. Uh, it's very straightforward. <laughs> um, mm. you know, there's no ethics. They don't. You know, it's not a long conversation. You just count them and move on. So I'm very.
2: I f- always feel very grateful <laughs> when okay. I get back to. Hang on, isn't there <laughs> ethics for fish? No, just joking. Never, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah, for, yeah, laughs> <different> they <stuff laughs> supposed to be. <laughs> um, but on the, and on the other side of things, for so for my PhD work, um, a lot of it focused on understanding the. Um, social economic impacts of integrated conservation and development and I would very much only looked at the social side of things so I had a lot of questions when it came to how integrated conservation and development in marine systems affected people through changes in ecosystem services and without that background and understanding of coral reef ecosystems there was a lot of gaps in my understanding so Work, beginning to work with Emily was really helpful in terms of me understanding coral reef systems, obviously, as social ecological systems.
0: Okay. So it was kind of, it was a really good fit when the two of you met. You were both kind of prepared to engage with the other.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: A okay. Best, best, best date I've ever been on.
0: <laughs> All right, Georgie, well done. Oh, gosh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think we really approached, I think we really hit it off quickly, um, had a lot of shared interests, shared values, as well as a really similar um, approach to the science in the sense of let's be, uh, let's listen to what the people who are actually on the ground need in terms mm-hmm. of both the social and ecological component. And I think we we both have had a real camaraderie in trying to think about what is going to be the most practical approach on the ground um, and always striving to find that you know really tricky transdisciplinary space of what is useful and practical and was also on the cutting edge of, of theory. And I've learned so much from Georgie about um, that transdisciplinary study um, and sort of how the very practical work we do on the ground actually is rooted in commons theory and management theory. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm super lucky to to be partnered with Georgie in this work.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We We've talked a bit about you know, the importance of interdisciplinarity, the importance of transdisciplinarity, but then there's always the question of, okay, these sound good when you put them into a PDF, but how do you actually make it happen? How do you actually do it? I mean, one of the lessons I feel like I've learned is, I mean, it's based on kind of commons governance theory is that there's an important bottom up part of the process where, you know, two people just meet and it turns out they get along. And so you have like this built up social capital and and under common understanding. So I guess one of the lessons so far already is interdisciplinarity needs like a really good first
4: date. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> Plus, I mean, shared values.
4: Right. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to I'd like follow up on that and hear from you, Emily, and also uh, Georgie. What is your your view on interdisciplinarity and what it actually is? You mentioned a couple of the projects and a couple of terms, also transdisciplinary, there in, in your introduction. And you know, when you think about interdisciplinarity. What are the details of that process? Is it about joint question formulation? Is it about kind of seeing deeper on a theoretical level where there might be some overlap and some hypothesis that we might have about the interactions, or is it methodological? Some combination of both. I think the term gets thrown around a lot, but I wanted to see what did it, for the two of you, how did it come together? Where were like the common links where you found connections in your work?
2: Well, I think, um, so the, the main project that Emily and I have been working together on for the last few years is this global social ecological monitoring framework for coral reef ecosystems. And the aim of the uh, project is to try and understand the social and ecological impacts of co-management um, marine uh, protection approaches. And so um that was in, we inherently took a transdisciplinary approach to that in that it was an integration of different types of knowledge practitioner and academic knowledge, as well as different types of di- um, different disciplines, social and ecological and various social and ecological disciplines and to us that was a, a transdisciplinary project in that it was motivated to address a real-world question that the wildlife conservation practitioners had in terms of trying to understand what what the impacts of their management were. And over time, they decided that they've got six or seven different programs across the world in different countries. And they tried to take a more standardized approach to their monitoring and evaluation systems, realizing that... One, they didn't want to reinvent the wheel every time they had a new project. And two, the benefits of being able to look across programs within countries, but also across countries to try to understand what were the key outcomes of their management activities and what were the drivers of those outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so very, very much this project was to address this real world problem. And to do that, obviously, um, as we've been discussing, a social ecological systems approach was necessary. So really uh, drawing on the expertise of the different ecologists and social scientists involved to try to bring the insights from different disciplines together to try and address this question of what impacts are we actually having and how can we try to monitor these in a standardised way across very different programs and very different contexts.
1: And to add to that
2: wonderful description,
1: I would just add workshops. It takes a lot of workshops.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, sounds like it takes a lot of work.
1: And that no, yeah. uh, but it's it's, su- it's such meaningful work. Like I, th- I mm. absolutely agree with with you know, wanted to highlight what Georgie was saying around the real-world question. So I think we started off as uh, we need to, uh, we really want to shape a global monitoring framework across multiple countries. Um, So I guess to back up a little bit, I'm a conservation scientist for the Wildlife Conservation Society, which is an international conservation NGO. Our coral reef program is active in more than 10 countries throughout Asia, Africa, the Pacific, and the Caribbean, so vast contexts. Um, and my job is to help understand and share the impact of our global coral reef work um, both to inform local management and policies within each country and then as Georgie said to look at What are these lessons we can learn across countries so that we can take that to an international policy arena? Um, or as an organization learn about what works from our from our approaches or what we need to to keep shifting and fine-tuning um, and so I think you know, when we, when we started this this project um, with kind of our, our mandate from a donor, which was the MacArthur Foundation, um, you know, they said, we've, we've heard this call from from your organizations, from others, that we need a global monitoring framework. So, you know, why don't you do that? So our first iteration was drawing on um, a different framework, not Eleanor Ostrom's social ecological systems framework, but a DIPS or driver's pressures, state impact mm. response framework. Um, And it turns out that was a bit of a legacy from the donor, from the World Bank. And as soon as we started to try to implement that on the ground or get feedback, it just started to fall apart. It was too, you know, Georgie can talk about the theory behind it and its, you know, shortcomings. But our field programs just felt it was too prescriptive. It was normative. um, It just wasn't recognizing the complexities of their work on the ground. And so that was one of the uh, first, you know, Impetus to reach out to Georgie and and or and or a social scientist and just say, well, what are our other options out here? And I think that's where the the theory and grounding really came to bring that basis to our work. So I think we started with a real real world question. We mm-hmm. tried out a few things that didn't work, and then we said, okay, let's let's actually go to the theory here. And that's where that theory came in. And then we all started to feel really comfortable because the space we were playing in felt grounded. Um, And obviously, you know, commons work, forest work, other co-management work that have faced these same challenges, just maybe in a shared managed forest, not a shared managed coral reef. And so I think, so I think the theory came a little down the road, but then that of course informed our methods, our questions, and really how we're able to take this work forward to really try to meet at that intersection of both. Something that's cutting edge academically and something that's cutting edge for policy and practice. And to me, that's, you know, the real sweet spot of what is transdisciplinary work. It's that you can have practitioners and academics uh, all in the same room uh, and come out with a question that everyone wants answered. And I think mm. that's um, what we often overlook when we when we don't think about transdisciplinary approaches.
0: Yeah. So you reached out to Georgie is my understanding is this something that's common in WCS to have these uh, academic partnerships to get the work done or is yeah. this kind of a unique thing
1: no absolutely um, and in fact I reached out to Georgie at first I reached out to Josh Sinner and he's at a very long maybe 20-year collaboration now gosh with yeah. Tim, yeah with Tim McClanahan um, who's our senior conservation zoologist also based in Kenya so it was really a legacy of, of Tim and Josh, um, who had started a lot of this interdisciplinary work that I first got engaged with and saw how uh, how meaningful it was and what cool questions they could ask, and that it okay. seemed like it mattered uh, when I was in Kenya. And so I think Georgie and I are really uh, an extension of that initial collaboration. Um, and, it, and it, you know, wses is a very science-driven organization. Uh, we have more than 300 PhD scientists on staff, and we uh, have... A, a very long list of publications in our annual report at the end of each year. So we're very evidence-based, science-driven. So academic collaborations uh, are a really good fit with our organization. And it's one of the, the reasons that I'm uh, really proud to be a researcher with that organization.
0: Yeah, that was another question I had, I wanted to ask you, Emily, was is was the possibility of doing this kind of work what drew you to work at WCS in the first place after you got your PhD?
1: Um, yeah, yeah, it did. Um. I think, any and There are a lot of NGOs um, that take that same strive for evidence base and publishing and, and collaborations. So a lot of our work, for example, with the Macmon Project drew on the Bird's Head Seascape social and ecological monitoring work in, in coral reefs. And that's a collaboration amongst TNC, WWF and CI. So some other big global NGOs. Mm. Um, I mean, I think for me and the fit with WCS, it, uh, just made a lot of sense because, um, I'd started, I'd been working with them during my PhD, mm-hmm. um, And then during my postdoc as well, I started zooming out a little bit to work with more programs. And then by the time that they were looking for someone to take this program, this new global monitoring off the ground, I was really, really delighted that they reached out to me and said, what do you think about that?
4: Yeah. I wanted to follow up on the transdisciplinary aspect of that project. Um, You emphasize a lot that you have a joint problem framing and, and you have different methodologies for doing that. For example, workshops. Uh, or interviews with non-academic stakeholders. And I'm wondering, I'm thinking a little bit about the sustainability science literature and kind of defining what a transdisciplinary research process is. And I wonder how far the integration with non-academic actors or stakeholders in the project carries forth beyond the problem framing and carries forth into the actual data collection processes, perhaps the the analytics of the data, the interpretation of what that means from their perspective, and then ultimately... The implementation and the defining of what success in the project is
2: yeah so before answering that just going back to the transdisciplinary process and what that meant for us in developing this global social ecological systems monitoring framework so once we beyond the problem framing once we adre- worked out what was our real world problem we want to address we transformed that real world problem into research questions to help f- define the objectives of the monitoring project a key activity then was to try and identify the key elements of the social ecological coral reef social ecological systems to actually monitor and focus on for the project and so we took a number of different pathways in trying to address and identify those different social ecological attributes including using theories of change they were really very useful and as Emily said numerous workshops um, in each of the focal countries as well as global workshops bringing practitioners, coral reef practitioners from the different countries that we're working in, including Indonesia, Fiji, Kenya, Madagascar, and so forth together to try to work out what were those common socio-ecological systems attributes across those different contexts. So to draw a bit on the knowledge co-production theory, these, these ideas of boundary spaces as well as boundary objects, and we used Eleanor Ostrom's social ecological systems framework very much as a boundary object to facilitate that interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary discussion during those workshops. And we found that that it was a really very useful way of of facilitating those conversations in that actually there isn't, as we know it's a framework, there's not a lot of theory embedded in it. And so that in that way it's actually very amenable to trying to, to talk across different theories, both social and ecological and providing that sort of shared language and shared space to facilitate that discussion. And also of course, which was really important to, um, getting for conducting this trans global transdisciplinary project was a knowledge broker essentially, which is kind of Emily's role in this project Mm. in having a, having a foot in both academia and of course, obviously, um, in the practitioner space as well. And I think, you know, it's, um, it takes a very particular personality as well to be successful as a knowledge broker in these kinds of contexts and I'm always amazed at how the energy that Emily has in terms of conducting this this global projects and sometimes with peoples with interests very different interests in different country programs and she has a lot of energy and a lot of um willingness to listen and learn and to compromise and I think that's one of the key things that not a sophisticated term, but willingness to compromise is so critical in these transdisciplinary projects. You know, mm. often we can't get in, you know, we can't be very strict to the specific academic question or approach that we want to take necessarily if it's just not practical on the ground or it doesn't address the real world question that people have. So a little bit there on the, the how, how we undertook that transdisciplinary process. But in terms of, yeah, sorry, I was just going to say once once we'd co-developed this monitoring framework, and that took a few years, actually the practitioners, of course, were the ones that actually rolled it out in the different countries and collected the data. And now the data are being used both by different scales to inform decision making, both at a sort of site-specific scale and a program-specific scale, as well as um, at the national scale within particular country program and then across the different countries and that is particularly these cross-country analyses are more of a a, a joint process.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah so following up on that and the idea of you know continuing to engage um people from different sectors as well as the original actors. Um, we had a SNAP working group funded about a year ago, which is uh, through the Science for Nature and People Partnership. And that's a, a kind of like an NCS or a Sysync Working Group, but with a specific aim of engaging uh, real-world practitioners. Um, So it was a really, uh, you know, awesome opportunity to bring those um, original focal country practitioners together with an expanded group of social scientists, both representing qualitative and quantitative expertise, uh, different theoretical backgrounds as well as with uh, international policymakers, So some of our key advisors are from the, are the IUCN Marine vice chair, the IUCN working group on other effective conservation measures, as well as the food and agricultural organizations, deputy director of fisheries. And so they, you know, having this opportunity for them to be in the room and say, look, here's what we've done so far, Uh, what do you think? And they're basically like, That's great. And how about answering these questions, which would actually be more relevant for us. Mm And so one thing we did was we identified a critical policy timeline. So that is trying to inform the post 2020 convention on biodiversity framework that countries are, that 196 parties to that convention are are currently negotiating. Um, And that's gonna be a really key opportunity to mobilize resources uh, and conservation policy for the next 10 years. And so one of the things that uh, Georgina and I had identified by working, of course, with all of our country programs is this critical role of co-management, whether or or diverse management approaches. So thinking beyond state-led protected areas into the things we were actually seeing on the ground. So that could be community managed fisheries, that could be uh, traditional management, that could be locally managed marine areas, indigenous and customary uh, practices, um, and so our advisors really helped us shape what we were seeing on the ground and say, look, those things are what we're trying to understand under an umbrella term of other effective area-based conservation measures or the acronym OECMs. Mm-hmm. And that language has been written into the convention on biodiversity 10 years ago. And you know, there's been a, a really solid and strong effort by the IECN to actually understand what are these things? Are they effective? How do they compare to protected areas? And sh- you know, should they stay in this language moving forward for another 10 years? Um, and so that was something that Georgie and I never, never you know, sought to use this project to do, but in bringing in the policymakers early on to co-create this working group, we just saw this really um, outstanding opportunity to, to advance, advance both science, advance both practice, and really get behind the, the on-the-ground approaches that our practitioners want to see. And so the opportunity here is that by using our global data set to I- investigate what are the social and ecological outcomes of different types of marine management that now are have been locally designed or comparable across countries. We've specifically focused around OECMs with our policy advisors. You know, there's a real, there's been a real a new opportunity to reshape our questions. So I think it all comes down to the data, the indicators, the framework you've used, and if you've got that right on the ground from the beginning, then I've always been impressed at how we've been able to really reshape our questions to be as relevant as possible. And by advi- engaging with policymakers at, at all different times during our timeline over the last five years, you know there's, there's never a bad time to ask a new question.
3: <laughs> hmm.
0: Oh goodness, there's a lot here to talk about. So Georgie, going back to what you were saying about the importance of, you said boundary spaces, and I've heard you use this language before, the SES framework as a boundary object. And by boundary space, do you mean these workshops where different folks are getting together?
2: Yeah, essentially, yeah.
0: Okay. And then when you're talking about Emily, as a knowledge broker, I mean, in my mind, I'm, I'm using the word like boundary actor. I mean, someone who's able to kind of spam boundary of social groups. And when you described what Emily was doing, that's kind of, a, that's what I heard.
1: I just bring the food to the workshops. Okay. <laughs> People come to the workshops and they know they're going to be well fed and they're going to have to compromise. Or they're all going to have to agree, agree on something at the end of the day.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: but I mean, it's,
0: it's interesting, right? Like it feels like you do need these different ingredients because... I mean, one of the things that attracts me to transdisciplinarity is, is how, you know, within academia, we can kind of get without that discourse, we can kind of get stuck in a space where we're kind of writing about things and we're rewriting about the same things. And it sounds great. Like, you know, we can all rip off a couple of pages about how if you only follow these highly articulate 500 words, uh, everything would be fine. But it's much, it's much different to actually try to implement these things. And so it sounds like there's there's these pieces here, you know, related to these concepts. You need a, a shared object to establish this common understanding. And the fact that you use the SES framework is very interesting to me, in part because it's been criticized for being actually not, for being a little bit complicated and un- unwieldy in some ways. So it's interesting that you were all able to kind of use it to establish a, at least somewhat of a common understanding. Um having these different spaces where people can kind of get into the same room and actually talk to each other and like put a face to a name, et cetera, and kind of humanize each other. But then also I mean, having like a particular individual, right? That, you know, okay, brings the food, but also is, is incurring a lot of uh, like emotional labor to try to understand like why someone is in a certain mood, maybe someday, and you know, all of these things that you know, you kind of have to do well in order to make that work. I mean, so I guess a question I'd love to ask you, Emily, is as you're working with all of these different people and trying to get folks to compromise, I'm sure some of that is automatic because we all have like this automatic system that we need to rely on, but I'm curious about your own process and how much of that is also deliberative for you? Like how much do you analyze your own position and <laughs> think about how you're engaging with this person and versus that person, how well things are going and how have you kind of, has that been a, like a process of pre- professional development for you to like learn how to run these things well?
1: <laughs> Georgie's gonna laugh at this, but um, process and deliberate are not really how I describe it. <laughs> <laughs> I would go with, we wing it. We wing it big time. <laughs> okay. Um, no, and I, I think this really creates a, a you know, to be... Shy. Emily, don't, don't give all our secrets
2: away of having run our. <laughs> all, right.
1: all right, wait, are we recording this? <laughs> um, no, I think, you know, I'd really like to recognize just the incredible people involved in this project. And so that is Sangita Mangubai and Stacey Jupiter in Melanesia, Tim McClanahan and Nyawira Mutiga in Kenya, Ravaka Ranaivason and Stephanie Dagada in Madagascar. Penny Lestari, Shinta Pardede, and Irfan Yulanto in Indonesia. And I know that would have been a lot more time zones to have all of us on this podcast. Mm. <laughs> um, but I, I just wanted to reflect on, in so many of these stories, this is really their voice coming through, um, mm. through Gina and I's work. And I think, you know, we started with a team that already, we all worked for the same organization. Um, and we all really want to accomplish something uh, that, that meant something, both to the countries and, and the governments that all of, of those people I mentioned are, are from. And they want to uh, leave the world a, a better place, thinking uh, very, you know, very practically about the links between nature and people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a very strong theme in our coral reef work at WCS, uh, like many other organizations. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I was, I've always been so inspired um, by these people, and particularly that they were willing to to come along with our dream about what if we all thought bigger like what if we didn't just think about our own each country program or each grant deliverable but what if we really thought bigger and said what do we need to learn about coral reefs together across all of these different contexts uh to to say something that matters and so i think you know there's such a a key group that sparked this collaboration and so i think me in, in particular, uh, my process has, has not been been deliberative deliberative in that sense, um, but I've been very, very grateful for early training in communication and facilitation and leadership that I uh, had through the Smith Fellows Program. So just to take a quick sidestep there, because I think it's just such a critical opportunity for, for researchers, especially early career researchers. Um, The Smith Conservation Research Fellowship is a two-year program through the Society for Conservation Biology. Uh, It takes uh, four to five fellows every year. And it really takes a very practical project and a, you know, practical researcher and then dumps you in the deep end of there is so much other theory that you can draw and practice that you can draw on to help your work. And that to be the most effective at that intersection between science and policy, science and management, you need these skills that we're not often taught as academics. And so we would have you know three or four week long retreats throughout the year, throughout the two years of the fellowship, with you know experts in uh, in media training. Uh, so we were filmed, and you know, and you had to watch it again. It was awful.
0: Oh, that's um, the most painful thing.
1: Super painful. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had facilitation training, so really learning about when are you a neutral facilitator, when are you a non-neutral facilitator, how do we work across different cultures and contexts, um, and just what's a
0: non-neutral facilitator?
1: Non-neutral facilitator is what I, what we often are. And it's the most dangerous way to facilitate. It sounds <laughs> because, tricky. Yeah. Because it means that you have an agenda in, even if it's just in the sense that you need to get something done. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes when Georgie and I would come into these workshops, my agenda was, okay, we have to get from A to B. I don't mm-hmm. care how, but like, we can't, we, we can't just circle around, you know, the, the start point. Right. And so it's a really dangerous place to facilitate because on one hand, I'm trying to create a really safe space where um, I have all kinds of ideas and suggestions, um, but at the same time, I'm not neutral, like a a professionally hired facilitator would be. Um, I need to get, you know, I need to get to an outcome because this has been an expensive meeting and we've just flown everyone here. So I would really just highlight there is such a deep body of practice that can be To early career researchers in the space, I think we're increasingly seeing a desire by early career researchers to take on these big global projects, um, which is awesome. And I would just highlight that you know, sign up for that project management course, sign up for facilitation, learn about your leadership style, figure out what are the pitfalls and traps before you show up and have to do it in real life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Mel Smith's program sounds fantastic. yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I, yeah, that, that's a whole other podcast, but yeah, it was really, I mean, for me, it was just completely transformational in how I think about myself as a researcher, where I landed up as a career. And, um, you know, I think how, you know, Georgie and I have been able to do this, this work together.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, w- I would love to spend like at least a week or whatever, a year going to some kind of professionalization workshop, getting these different skills that, You get away from accruing as you get older you just kind of get tracked right and so yeah i mean i think particularly when you're younger before you maybe you get as tracked to like have that as part of your basic training i mean i will say emily it's it you know you said you wing it but then like we have all this theory and this process it does sound like there's a lot that goes into it okay one question i want to make sure to ask is what has been your favorite part about Transdisciplinarity and being a part of a transdisciplinary project, and what has been like your least favorite part?
2: The time zones. Oh, no, come on. <laughs> least <Okay>. part. <laughs> <laughs> um I think my most favorite part is the really wonderful and interesting people that we get to meet through these projects and mm. the things that I learn. Mm-hmm. Um and The bringing that all that different knowledge together, and coming up with a different answer that that is not just interesting from a curiosity, you know, curiosity academic point of view, but actually when we get to something where we really think that it's actually meeting an information need for decision makers, information needs being at the the local scale, or now this project that Emily and I uh, was talking about about the SNAP project, sort of working more trying to inform global policy that's so inspiring and it's really re-energizes really my interest in my work when we're working on a problem that really feels like it actually is going to have um, some real world impact and difference.
0: Yeah. All right. Definitely. That's well said. And your least favorite part other than the time zones?
2: Um, the, I think it's, I think obviously it's quite um, difficult trying to balance the demands of Academia and mm-hmm. the goalposts that we're always trying to meet in terms of mm-hmm. well, I mean, even though you know, increasingly academia is going towards more about trying to demonstrate that your research is having impact on the ground. you all really know all they actually care about when they're assessing your grants and <laughs> your job applications and so forth is your numbers of papers and where you publish them. But, yeah. um, so trying to trying to sort of balance the demands of academia as well as um, the demands of, uh, real, uh, you know, engaging with practitioners and trying to undertake projects that have real world impact is, is difficult because obviously mm. sometimes, sometimes those goals are aligned and that's wonderful, but often they're not and they um, both demand a lot of time.
0: Yeah. I mean, how, it's like, how do you make yourself legible professionally by having the, the numbers of this and that that you need, but then also accomplish these other values that you have?
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah that's right I mean I think the really the great thing is you know in recent years, obviously, as sustainability science and these kinds of approaches have been growing, the importance of taking a transdisciplinary approach and engaging with real world actors is increasingly recognised mm. um, and as I meant you know just touched on before, I think you know, it seems to be a lot of uh, research organizations, uh, you know, across the globe are increasingly interested in researchers demonstrating impact of their work. So that's really, really helpful. But um, yeah, it is is a challenge. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you think like programs like this Macmon project, which I know it as can serve as a kind of a flagship or a model for how this work can be done and encourage other folks to do more of it to kind of a proof of concept kind of thing? I mean, I know it's not the only thing like it, but certainly seems to be one of the more ambitious examples.
1: Oh um, didn't know what we were
2: getting into at the time.
0: <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Maybe that's the best way Sorry, to get the most things. Were
2: you say? <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I was just going to say, obviously there are many, many examples of transdisciplinary projects all over the place. I, I guess this, I mean, this is a nice example, perhaps of where you're trying to do it also across countries where that obviously adds another layer of complexity in terms of trying to interact interactions in terms of cross-cultural differences and ways of interacting and so forth. But
3: Mm.
2: yeah, there's a lot of, there's increasingly a lot of projects out there like this that we can all learn from. Mm. Mm
0: -hmm. So Emily, same questions to you.
2: Ooh, fun.
1: Um, so my, my favorite part of this process, um, has been just, just as Georgie said, how much, uh, how much energy and inspiration it's given me personally as a scientist and as, and as a human. Um, it's just been fun. Um, it's been really fun to work with these wonderful people all over the world. Um, l- you, you know, meet new friends, learn about colleagues on a different level, really be, be engaged with our sleeves rolled up trying to solve, solve a problem. Um, so, yeah, I, I have absolutely adored this project and all the people involved in it uh, for, in that way. Mm. Um, I, I, I absolutely agree with Georgie, again, on the hard parts, it's the incentives. Um, mm. We have very different incentives across sectors, and I think ultimately transdisciplinary projects will fail if they don't try to address those head-on. And so one of the things we've tried to do early on in our SNAP project with uh, policymakers, academics, practitioners, uh, is just think about what, what do we need to be able to create the space to do this work? Uh, is it, you know, do we need resources? Do we need products? Do we need papers? Do we need reports? Do we need blogs? Do we need social media? You know, what, what, and and then what can we share as incentives for all of us in, in, in this together, so that we can show, you know, the people who pay us, or the people who are going to pay us, hopefully, if they give us a job, that we're achieving something. And I think that's where I get, um, you know, I can get the most sort of frustrated at when transdisciplinary science doesn't work, it's because the the system, the system, the system, the system of these different sectors just doesn't allow for that creativity and space.
3: Yeah. Um,
1: I think we've been very very lucky in the people we've worked with, and the institutions we've worked across, and being funded by SNAP that they see this creative, uh, visionary, you know, or this this opportunity to think differently as being really good. But then, of course, each individual actor still needs to, at the end of the day, come back to what they need. Uh, to do for their jobs. And um, I wish there was, I wish there was more uh, agency that everyone in our group could take to, you know, press pause on the rest of our lives and say, look, here, this is our six months that we've got to influence the next 10 years of conservation. Like, I, I really cannot respond to this reviewer request right now. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really, um, yeah, so I think, you know, I, I, yeah, I think about that a little bit. Um, and as Georgie said, it takes time. Um, so this project is, we're five years on now. Um, and you know, we're, we're just starting to, to really feel like we're seeing some of the products that people would expect from this type of work. Um, whereas I feel like, you know, we had, we've been lifted off for three, three years now. We've done two repeated monitorings. Um, some of the you know, most comprehensive social and ecological monitoring in uh, four countries around the world. We've added two additional countries because they wanted to. (laughs) They're like, hey, this is cool. Can we write this into our our report? And they're like, yes, this is fabulous. Um, We've developed, you know, a a new software tool to help us, which is uh, Mermaid for ecological work. We've adopted open source data tools, you know, open data kit for our social work. Um, But that was all just sort of in the background and so
3: Hmm. i
1: felt like i was living the secret life of being a transdisciplinary scientist for five years because nobody knew that this was where all my
0: oh that's so interesting
1: going into Um, Yeah, yeah. so i'd really like to find to think more as well about you know i think a lot about science communication i think it's of course critical um in you know in this particular work that i do and i'd really just like to think about um how can the system that you know georgie 's in as an academic or the system that i 'm in as an NGO researcher how do we just create that uh, flexibility and creativeness in our communication so that um, we don 't feel like we're we 're behind or we should be doing something else because the system doesn 't recognize what we 're trying to do
0: yeah, I mean each one of these i mean this relates to that paper that I'm, you know i 've been working on with both of you, Georgie and Emily, on comparing these different large scale database projects i mean each one essentially feels like a case study, and each one of these projects of that compares a lot of different cases feels like an example of you know self governance like these groups need to get together and figure out how they're actually going to govern themselves, how are they going to try to align incentives based on the different benefit streams that different people are getting? How do you and you know as a commons person, I can't avoid thinking about things like the you know the, the mermaid tool that you mentioned Emily developing. You know that sounds to me like a straightforward public good that was you know that now can benefit other people but you know the problem with public good provision is always that people are going to free ride so how do you actually incentivize folks to develop that stuff you know that was a powerful way to describe it as being invisible to the external world not being legible as you're developing those things that sounds like a challenging thing to try to do for several years i mean the lag time there i think would be i think i could see a lot of similar projects and groups not succeeding through that initial you know, two to three year phase. And it, it's another lesson that I feel like I'm hearing as you said it several times, it, it's like it's the people
3: mm-hmm. that
0: really incentivizes folks. I mean, and, and it's about incentives, right? Like when I think about my successful collaborations, pretty much every one of them, maybe this is like necessary but not sufficient and involved the fact that I, I liked the people that I was working with in some way. But of course then, then, then there's the question of how do you actually get the right people in the room? which is, you know, if, if ultimately that's what makes the difference. And I think, you know, there's a strong emotional intelligence intuition that 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 is a big thing that makes a difference. Then it's about selection. My impression is that some of this was also fairly bottom up in terms of like who was involved, et cetera. But were you all deliberative about that? Trying to like get um, a diversity of opinions or making sure that everyone could kind of play well together, or was it kind of serendipity purely? And people ended up just getting along and, being able to compromise when they needed to.
1: Georgia, you should take that one. I know we've we a lot together. If you want to.
2: Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, collective action challenge. I think there's, there's been, a, someone wrote a lot about that sometime. I mean, a lot of people have written a lot about that sometime. In a all these people. principles that we kind of write about in our academic work when we try and think about overcoming collective action challenges related to commons, you know, all these little, thinking about the IAD framework and the elements that are conducive for successful outcomes in terms of trust and reciprocity and Mm -hmm. uh, procedural justice and fairness Mm -hmm. and all those things. I mean, all of those things come out obviously important in these kinds of situations as well and the way that um, everyone interacts together in trying to develop these projects. And um, I'd say in some of the work that Emily and I have done together, the personalities are in the room that are, are just there because of, um, you know, it, I think it's very important who, who was in the room and the personalities in the room and if they get along well together. So I think getting that balance of the expertise as well as people who are likely to get on and be great collaborators is, is really very important. Mm.
1: As well as, and I really echo that as well, in that even once you have the people together in the room, um, how do we create the space for all voices to be heard? Um, and that's one thing that I know I've really been trying to work on as a facilitator and certainly learning a lot from other facilitators. Um, is just thinking about how do we break down, you know, different uh, cultural approaches to collaboration, to mm-hmm speaking to raising your voice, how do we recognize the power structures that are in a room just based on experience or years in the field, um, how do we break down privilege around who, you know, raising different voices as well, or, or asking different voices to step back. Um, and it's, it's hard. And I think it takes a... Yeah, it's very hard. Yeah, it's hard. Um, but it's so rewarding once we've been able to do this. And I think one of the, one of the key pieces of success um, has been long-term funding. And so I think as people in our group, you know, particularly from the, the practitioner side who've been, you know, choosing indicators that mean something for their programs to rolling it out, is that we've had a 10-year funding window from the MacArthur Foundation. Um, and their program officer has really just fought for, fought for us in ways that I can never thank her enough for, um, uh, especially as the MacArthur Foundation is now, you know, twilighting out its biodiversity conservation funding work. Um, mm. And so this... You know, this sustained funding really lets us uh, have credibility to our stakeholders uh, and say, look, we're going to be doing this for a long time. We'd love to have you involved. Whereas I think, as we all know, uh, you know, shorter grant cycles don't always have that. You're you're scrambling, you got to get something done, you don't have time to really think about who needs to be in the room, you don't right. have time to think about. Yeah. So I would just really also uh, pay a, a, a homage to, yeah, donors and program officers who've Believed in us uh, mm. to, to
2: have long term funding for this work.
0: I've taken the yeah. long view.
2: Yeah, just to pick up on a point Emily just made. Yeah, I mean, trying, that's one of the biggest challenges that we um, face when have, holding these different workshops for the projects is trying to provide a space for all voices to be heard. And for example, in the, um, the last uh, workshop that we held, we had people, I think, from 14 different countries. Um, different age groups different from academia and from um, practitioners and people at different uh, stages of their career and so as Emily alluded to obviously they're quite all these different people have different approaches to thinking about hierarchy about speaking out about um, contesting things about discussion deliberation all those kinds of things and so we really try and think a lot about how can we provide the spaces and think of different ways of providing spaces in a workshop setting for these different voices to be heard. So whether we try to use different kinds of mediums or different kinds of approaches that can draw out the voices that we don't usually hear so much um, without sort of putting people on the spot at all. And, And we also think about those things a lot as well when we're writing papers and trying to get feedback from different people. It's not just as simple as just sending out a manuscript and expecting everyone to read it, trying to think about different approaches to really get other people's opinions that are away from the usual ways that we usually do these things. And I think, Um, That's an ongoing learning (laughs) process and um, we find often after our workshops, we have these, you know, feedback cards and we find those very useful in terms of trying to work out, navigate um, those issues, Mm. Mm. what works, what doesn't work and Mm. what we need to do. Yeah. So if
0: you were just going to share like one, if you could share like one lesson about what worked to to reconcile, you know, 14 different sets of norms about how you should engage with different people. Like if you were going to give some advice to someone else who's starting this based on something you learned that makes that work, like what would that one exercise or did you break people into groups or like what's one lesson or an example of something that was like, okay, that, that worked.
2: Um, well, I think, um, Oh, you go, Emily. No, no, um, you, go, you go. Well, I was just going to say, obviously breaking people into smaller groups, I think is very important. And we found that uh, in many cases, activity-based things worked really well in terms of drawing people out, whether, Mm -hmm. for example, in terms of developing the Global Social Ecological Monitoring Program, these theories of change were a really great way of getting people engaged because it tapped into their expertise and their knowledge and um, gave them the confidence to, speak out and um, have their voices heard and so um and again like, you know we used ostrom's framework as well as we found that really useful as well as um the last sort of workshops we had in terms of trying to get a bit a bit more um con- understanding of the context so elucidating that social and ecological context in the sort of narrative type way using that visual of the social ecological systems framework, which you mentioned before that, you know, people think it's a little complicated, but if we don't go into the second tier variables and all that stuff, just those those boxes of the subsystems and the arrows are actually, it's a very sort of simple depiction of socio-ecological mm-hmm. systems that everyone sort of understands and can um, associate with. So I think those kinds of activities seem to work quite well. Okay. And Emily, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I, I think um, one thing I, I,
1: I wanted to add is that we're, you know, I'm always learning in these spaces, just as I know Georgie is. Um, yeah. And I, I'm constantly being surprised and then being like, oh yeah, of course, why didn't that, like, why didn't we think of that? But I think one thing that came out of our recent workshop was not making assumptions about uh, who should be or could be contributing to what aspect. To give an example, we had uh, an afternoon uh, session where we were really trying to Define and, and explicitly identify what are you know key governance hypotheses that might be the critical pillars of whether something is successful or not. Which of course there's such a deep history from uh, mm-hmm. and theory about. Um, but what the way it happened is we happened to have all of the field program uh, people, you know, having this space where there actually weren't that many academic scientists in the room, and so they were able to provide. They're, you know, examples from what worked in Kenya when co-management between, you know, what happened in those Fisher's meetings that seemed to work for them or, you know, in Madagascar when conflict, you know, happened, how is that dealt with? And so it was really fascinating because, you know, we had people like Graham Epstein and Natalie Ban, you know, sitting at the back of the room mm. um, and they were just so gracious in how they added richness and added citations and theory when it was needed but in Mm -hmm. general step back and let let the the practitioners really uh, dive into dive into their experience um and you know what one of the most inspiring things to me would be just you could see the the sparks and creativity as you know the madagascar perspective came then the kenya perspective was like oh yeah we've seen that same thing and fiji was you know thinking well actually we see something different here and so this. Oh, that's cool rich discussion, and uh, yeah, so I think, you know, if I designed that exercise maybe four years ago, I would have said, well, we're, you know, we're gonna have the academics uh, lead the way, they have the experience here, and then we'll, you know, we'll see what the practitioners think. And I actually think just the way that this happened is that um, the the practitioners were, you know, were the ones leading the way, and the academics were there as a support. Um, and so I would really recommend people to um, not have assumptions, and then during a workshop to actively challenge those assumptions, play with power, you know, how we think about power, play with knowledge and experience. Um, and uh, some really, yeah, I think some of my most surprising moments came from those types of experiments.
4: I wanted to follow up on on that. First, I just really appreciate that we get into a little bit more of the details on on workshops as a social science methodology, because I think a lot of people put them into their proposals, they put them into their project work packages. And it, there's not too many specific details other than that we're going to do a workshop um, and some of the reflections that you had there. And I'm, I'm wondering if you've tried having any kind of formalized mechanisms of evaluating their success or the perceptions that the participants have within them. For example, if, if you do surveys before about what the expectations might be uh, or, or afterwards about how, the, how they felt about the process, if they changed their mind or not, if you have any sort of metrics to, to evaluate those.
1: Yeah, no, but that's a, a great idea we should definitely think about for the future. Um, like Georgie said, we do, with a, a rich theory and NGO practice, we do a plus delta at the end of every workshop. And so Georg, Georgie and I, you know, we'll often kind of need a, a little bit of a stiff drink before we dive into those. We're like, <laughs> what are they going to say? <laughs> and I'd, I'd have to also really recognize the work of Carrie Capel, um, who is a professional facilitator um, and researcher at NCs. And we, uh, she just so graciously joined us uh, in, in conceptualizing the workshop and thinking through the objectives and activities and, and this need for creativity. She was able to be a neutral facilitator in this case, so I think that really let Georgie and I just take a breath, step back, and contribute as participants, uh, which was which was really appreciated.
4: Yeah, it makes it makes me think about. A lot of what we see as the value coming out of this, at least from an academic perspective, is is the publications which come out and which get written up about those those processes, those those workshops. And it seems to me that a lot of the the value is, you know, maybe from an ostrom perspective, it's action situation where you can actually observe happening live, the, the social mm. learning process, the co-production, you can see the tensions rise and then mm. dissolve back away again and then rise again and then dissolve as you see someone understand the process or you see people become friends or you see these types of more interpersonal relationships happening. And I wonder how much of that in academia we're missing by not finding ways to measure it. And, and to convey it in the proper way through, through the kind of the standard mediums of publications. And I wonder if you thought at all about, about that process and how we can better yeah, value that. If you think, because you said one of the things earlier was one of the, the bad things or the downsides of these processes was having to deal with the more formal aspects of what we expect to be delivered from an academic perspective.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And, and how can we transfer those over and try, and try to get some more recognition for those in academic work?
1: Certainly, like, I'd love to, you know, I think NGOs, and obviously, you know, all other practitioners and policymakers are always having workshops. And so, you know, I'd love some kind of, you know, academic uh, internship program where you just send someone who's really interested in this kind of work to, to join these workshops and see that process and reflect on it. So... Yeah, I think those types of out-of-the-box kind of situations are so are so interesting. And I think that's also what, um, you know, the academic institutions I've been affiliated with, that's what they want to publicize. They want to see their, their researchers or their students in the real world, you know, photos of them with teams and here's, here's a blog, here's a media press release and all that stuff that comes way before a paper. And so I think finding as well, finding that right match of academic institutions who want to take those risks, be creative. Um, but yeah, um, internship, anyone, you're, feel free to come join our next workshop.
4: <laughs> yeah, I'm really, I'm really just a note on that. I'm, I'm really interested in how you use the SES framework as a potential deliberation tool. We did a pilot study in Costa Rica about two years ago, where we tried to turn it into images, into contextually appropriate images, and then use that as a, as a facilitation tool in with stakeholders, fishers, perhaps in a low education uh, situation where they might not be familiar with the terminology and even just academic actor or non-academic actors are not familiar with the terminology, which is in perhaps the SES framework, uh, at least at the second tier level. And I'm wondering if you moving beyond the framework or transforming it in some way into images or what have you can kind of break some of the academies of these frameworks. Um, when you bring them into to non-academic situations. Hmm. And if you yeah, thought, absolutely n- not necessarily yeah, the I SES think- framework, but you know, other frameworks like DPSR that you mentioned or ecosystem services, where they're very academies and how we read about them in the literature, but they can be useful in, in these deliberation situations that you mentioned.
0: I'm really happy that we use the word academies.
2: <laughs> um, I think, yeah, it sounds really cool, though, what you were doing in Costa Rica. You were, you in, you were engaging with, with fishers
4: yeah we had set it up as like yeah. a like a field experiment where some fishers groups of fishers got the image based framework and some didn't and we told them to discuss challenges they had for governance and then we measured the content or we recorded the conversations mm-hmm. and then coded them with the variables of the SES framework to see if they talked in a more holistic or systems thinking perspective and then tried to compare before and after surveys what their experience of the process was it was just a pilot study and we're going to we're going to upscale it bigger project coming up so i'm definitely interested to hear your your input or perspectives I'm or what you've learned in your project so we can so we can get those experiences out
2: um oh i'm curious to, what did you find just quickly <laughs> what did you find it <laughs> a <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's so interesting
4: uh, yeah, our it sample is, is. is too small, so we 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 it's published in Ecology and Society now, but it's mostly as a concept paper with the with the pilot data. But yeah, we saw we saw an increase in the in the groups which used the framework that they talked more holistically about the system. They used it as a checklist, as we would say. We, they went through it and they talked about each of the four major sections and how it related to governance. And the groups that didn't mostly complained about the issues which related to them.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we also tried to communicate the SES framework trying to you know using photos to try to represent the different subsystems and so forth and found that an effective way to try to um communicate the framework and and I, I think um you know I think that it is very useful in that way as as acting as that as that boundary object not just between um people with expertise in ecology and in social science and also um, academics and practitioners and other forms of decision makers. In that, it that just looking at the the framework it is quite. It is uh, fairly simple, and you can communicate it in ways that are understandable from many different people with many different types of knowledge. So I think that it was very valuable in that way. Um, we haven't looked at the the. I mean, we haven't examined the transdisciplinary processes that we've undertaken. In, in, in we haven't assessed them scientifically but as Emily said maybe that's a great opportunity for an intern or others to um to do so certainly it's interesting I think uh when we see this, this rise in um this area of you know knowledge co-production theory and how to generate actionable knowledge and increasing interests in different kinds of knowledge co-production that's there's that some of these key lessons are being drawn out it's just not um obviously we've been reflected on those kinds of things and tried to Engage and draw on those concepts in the work that we have done, although it hasn't been a specific focus of ours in terms of trying to sort of um, bring that in as a, as an academic piece.
1: Mm-hmm. But I think definitely these ideas of um, some, something for people to reflect to has been really helpful. Um, I think a little bit about the inspiration I, I took from um, one of our workshops in Madagascar where we were trying to, in addition to you know, operationalizing the SES framework, um, there's a real uh, need to, to think about some food security indicators. And so, uh, Southwestern Madagascar in particular was in the grips of drought. Um, and so fishing was one of the only ways to bring protein in, but fishing populations, uh, fisher, yeah, the fish populations are, uh, were not looking good. And so the teams, we, you know, as we operationalized this framework in every country, we said, what else do you want to know about? And since we're going out to do these surveys, what else should we add? And so food security, uh, was really crucial in Madagascar. Um, and so I think what one thing we did that worked really well was um, working. So in Madagascar, we were working across three languages and several different dialects. <laughs> so wow. that English, French and Malagasy. And Madagascar is a huge island, as we all know. And so there are three different dialects of Malagasy in, as well. Um, and so I think one thing that worked really well was that um, I'd... Had a you know a very shallow little bit of reading in food security, and so was able to just bring a couple things that had worked for me in Kenya to the French leaders in the room, and so we sort of took the slides and that I had and really quickly put French on you know switch the English to French, and then they presented you know a couple different options of conceptualizing food security to the group um, in French. Um, and so that was, you know, thinking about diet diversity, food coping strategies, indices, or just um, what was something else, just generally like, you know, are people food secure? Yes, no. Do you struggle to have enough food to eat approaches? Um, and so that was in French. And then what we sort of the external foreigners did was we just uh, stepped back. And so um, Ando Rebri-Soa uh, is a Malagasy scientist. Um, social scientist. And so she took off with the group for the next two hours uh, solely in Malagas and asked, uh, okay, so this, and, you know, as she told us later said, you know, she said, okay, this is what we've heard. Uh, You're all from these places. What works for you? And so they spent the next two hours working in pairs and then smaller groups and then reporting back to the whole group. And this whole thing was done in Malagasy. Um, and so then, you know, at the end, they said, <clears throat> OK, we're ready. <laughs> and you know, then they switched back to French and then that got switched back to English. And they're like, here's our three questions. And it was fab. You know, the questions wow. were fabulous, but it was like one was on acute food security. One was on chronic food security. Um, and it was context relevant. So they described to us that whether a person in the in you know rural coastal communities has access to three meals a day, that is food secure. And if you have access to less than that, then that is less food secure. And so one of the questions was, you know, have you eaten three meals a day today? And I think not only did that ground that in something that's realistic, it also grounded in something that is acceptable. So when we first started to try to think about food security questions in Melanesia. Um, we adopted a USDA, you know, seven, those 12 questions that had been used in Indonesia. And we we're like, oh, cool. It's already been tested in another country. Let's like chuck it in. Um, and people in our pilot programs walked out of the interviews when we asked those food security questions. And, you know, as we learned, it was uh, it was that this is just you're asking us if we would, you know, something like if we would drown our child in the bathtub. If you, if you ask us, can we not provide for our family to eat? This is just completely inappropriate and, and rude. And like, you know, so we, um, this is why you should always pilot questionnaires, of course, <laughs> with, you know, safe mm-hmm. space. So I think, yeah, anyways, I, I'm not sure what I think about all that, but maybe there's well, that, other people oh, can That's fascinating.
0: <laughs> I mean, but then the challenge, right, is, so you've got these context specific questions but then if you add context-specific questions for many different contexts, you know, how do you avoid ballooning the size of your questionnaires and your protocols, et cetera? I mean, do I remember correctly that y'all essentially in the end have like a core set of variables and then kind of more peripheral variables that you ask more context specifically? Is that how you address this kind of generality specificity trade-off?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm, yeah. Oh yeah. I'm going to turn this one over to Georgie. Because <laughs> there's a lot more about this than I have. <laughs>
2: Um, yeah, we designed the survey so that it would have this core set of social and ecological variables or attributes of the social ecological ecological system that we identified through these numerous workshops as sort of key elements of the system to understand the impacts of management and what were particularly important variables or factors that okay. um, influenced the the magnitude of those impacts. So we identified that those were key across the different four focal countries that we we're working on through these workshops, um, both with the individual countries and also with all of um, with the countries together in the same room. And then, yes, those core that are intended to be supplemented with. Context specific or project specific indicators. And as Emily mentioned, in um, one case, that in Madagascar, for example, that was in regards to food security. That was a key issue that they um, needed to look at there. In other cases, it was in, for example, in regards to the impacts of a cyclone in Fiji and a payments for ecosystem services project. So, in that way, we try to navigate that potential trade off between generalizability and case based relevance. So that we have some indicators that are standardised across context, so we right. can do those cross-project, cross-country analyses, but there are also context-specific indicators that can tell us about the particular problem um, in a particular place. Although okay. sometimes, of course, and it's intended, serve, the social surveys, the household surveys are about 45 minutes, and sometimes it's very difficult to keep it to that, to sure that time. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, we've been talking for a while now. I mean, I could keep on asking you questions for the rest of the day, but um, I guess a final one for me, and then Stefan, you can take us home. It, you know, next steps. You said you're five years into the project, and you've it's got funding for ten years. So essentially, are we at the halfway point of this project?
1: Oh, oh I wish. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, I guess we're kind of we're coming into the, our last three years of funding. Okay. Okay. I think one thing we've found uh, as, you know, really both inspiring and practical when we do these types of very participatory projects is that um, the people involved want to keep doing it if you've done it well. And so I think one of our opportunities to continue this work as, you know, a core pillar in our WCS progr- uh, coral reef programs um, is having other grants be able to take this work on and fund it. Um, with other countries or with other questions. Um, we've started to see just those, you know, some really inspiring signs of that. Um, and that's something that I'll certainly be
2: be working on over the coming years.
0: Okay, that's exciting.
2: And I think also that, um, as Emily said, because this, you know, Stratory Ecological Systems Monitoring Program was designed to meet the real-world information need of the coral reef practitioner programs, the intention there is that the framework will uh, will form the basis of the of monitoring across different projects and um, into the future, hopefully. And we're seeing signs of that happening, as Emily said. And so it doesn't rely on any particular source of funding. In that, those hopefully those um, data will be continue to be generated into the future, funded by many different sources.
0: Okay. Hmm. And so if other folks want to use, you know, the mermaid tool or learn from what you all have been doing in terms of the protocols, the, you know, the SES framework protocols, et cetera, can they access those if they want to try to implement those in their own case?
1: Absolutely. You can check out our new paper led by Georgina in biological conservation, um, which has all of our policy or uh, uh, survey instruments. published as appendices and takes you through um, a lot of our thinking around data workflows and data management as well. Oh, perfect. Uh, Recently been one of the more uh, pressing banes of my existence, (laughs) just figuring out, uh, you know, just solving all those challenges that uh, inevitably come up when you're dealing with pretty complex uh, data workflows. Um, But certainly in Mermaid, uh, another one of our pride and joys uh, can be found on datamermaid.org. And if you or your friends do any kind of Ecological survey on coral reefs underwater. Please go check out Mermaid. We'll be having a big push uh, coming up to the International Coral Reef Symposium meetings uh, this summer as well. All
0: right, that sounds awesome. I mean, I'm excited to look more into that for the work in the Dominican Republic that I have been involved in a bit. So I'm, I'm sure people are going to be looking at that.
4: I think you know, reflecting about all the work you've done in this project, and and I think what is this the most broad level we can step back? And one of you know, how do we make environmental governance work and i think you mentioned we're moving towards collaborative governance there's a big shift towards things like co-management as, as policy tools and bringing people together and and, and finding out what are those spaces of interaction and learning and, and theoretically we have a lot of of theories which have built on environmental governance things like polycentricity and collective action and multi-level governance and i'm wondering in and when you think forward and and where we're going to go with with environmental governance theory and what 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 we're gonna be at and maybe you know down the line five, ten years, what what are the the areas we should be focusing on to to improve our understanding of of perhaps environmental governance theory but also in gar- environmental governance in practice, if you have any reflections on 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 that at a broader level?
2: Obviously, the need for multi scale environmental governance is increasingly pressing, as you said, you know obviously. That has been a focus of um, research for a long time, and polycentricity has obviously been a key area of work for many scholars for environmental governance. But as the, you know, as a lands- as we get increasingly globalized, and the um, landscapes of stresses, stresses and threats to environmental systems is in- increasingly we get a lot more um, distal drivers. And the origins of those of those stresses are increasingly non-local. How can we effectively take a lot of this theory and actually apply it in practice in terms of multi-scale governance, right down from individual communities up to up to global agreements and policies? But also I think a key area in that in that respect as well is thinking about who are the stakeholders and who are the The public when we think about these environmental issues because we're it's not just the environmental threats that are increasingly globalized but we as people are increasingly globalized and whether it's travel through its mobility through travel or mobility through mediated through social media and other forms of communication information technology our our interests in in, in natural environments or in socio-ecological, particular social ecological systems are not just uh, those that are local to us, but they may be very far away And thinking about who, who has the right to be involved in those decision-making processes. Is it just the people who live close to those particular um, localities or is it someone in another country potentially that feels like they are attached or they have a strong interest in that particular place? So I think that that will be sort of thinking about know, sort of telecoupling and these kinds of things and how that intersects with environmental governance and who are actually those stakeholders is a really important area moving forward.
1: Mm-hmm. I think from from my perspective, it, you, we just have to show that environmental governance matters, and obviously we all know that matters within our you know academic spheres and you know our direct kind of colleagues and and people who rely on that but we've got to show it matters in a global policy arena and I think you know as we also need to be taking the pulse of what is going on around in the in the policy world around us because that does just have such an opportunity at a global scale to mobilize resources where they're needed and if we don't engage as academics or if we don't engage as experts it just goes down a different a different path and we're left sort of writing our papers saying that why aren't we all talking about environmental governance um and it it is is obviously hard um and it's hard to know how to how to get into those those places i'm sure we've all you know in this group worked really hard in all the places that we work but i think there is such an opportunity to do that type of of science that transdisciplinary process we've talked about i know you know many of us are really interested in how this New umbrella term around other effective area-based conservation matter measures, OECMs, has the opportunity to recognize a lot of old-standing practices of environmental governance on the ground. So yeah, I think I think we've got to show it matters. Um, and as Georgina said, you know, really thinking about who who is that audience, uh, what is the best way to communicate to them, how do we engage them in co-creating these research questions from the beginning, and then how do we convince you know the people who ultimately make it happen, who are the funders, whether those are national science foundations, whether those are our um, philanthropy, you know, how do, how do we show them what the, the outcomes of this work are? What, you know, what would have happened if we hadn't done this work? And, and that's why we've got to create, keep funding these spaces to make environmental governance um, as relevant as possible to as many, you know, different spheres as possible. So I think that's where that would be some of my perspectives on. I'm moving forward. And I actually think it's, it's possible. I think projects like this show it's possible. I think all of the other amazing projects that we've learned so much from show it's possible. And that would really be my, my call to action looking forward.
0: Great. Thank you both of you. Yes. Thank you very much for your time.
2: It's been a nice hour and a half.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much, Mike and Stefan for having us. And always a pleasure, Georgie.
2: Yes. Thank you everyone. It was really lovely to have a chat with you all and, um, And thanks for having Emily and I on the podcast. It's a great initiative.
4: If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website, www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you'll find a content and guest request form Here, we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.